Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From MCIE. If you don't know about Tash, are you even an inclusionist? Hold up. Some of you might be saying, Tim, what in the what is Tash? Okay, here is what you need to know. TASH is a disability rights organization that has been around since 1975 that advocates for human rights and inclusion for people with significant disabilities and support needs. Those most vulnerable to segregation, abuse, neglect, and institutionalization. Is this speaking to you? If so, you are going to love this episode. My name is Tim Viegas from the Maryland Coalition for Inclusive Education, and you are listening to Think Inclusive, a show where with every conversation, we try to build bridges between families, educators, and disability rights advocates to create a shared understanding of inclusive education and what inclusion looks like in the real world. You can learn more about who we are and what we do at MCIE.org. For this episode, I speak with members of the Inclusive Education Community of Practice from TASH, Debbie Taub, Diane Rindak, and Mary Fisher, about TASH's position statement on the characteristics of fully inclusive schools. So just a point of clarification, we recorded this interview earlier this year before the annual conference was held in Phoenix, the first weekend of December. I'm going to give my full recap and reflection of that TASH conference in my audio newsletter, The Weeklyish. Go to weeklyish.substack.com to subscribe and get it in your inbox when it drops next week. Thank you so much for listening. And now, my interview with Debbie Taub, Diane Rindak, and Mary Fisher. Hi, I'm Debbie Taub. I'm on the TASH board, and I also am a technical assistance provider for the TIE Center, which is a national technical assistance center that works on building inclusive systems for students with the most significant cognitive disabilities. Hi, I'm Diane Rindak. I'm at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, 
Um, I am co-chair of the TASH Inclusive Education Community of Practice, a former TASH board member. Um, and I also am affi- affiliated with the um, uh, TIES National Technical Assistance Center on Inclusive Practices and Policies. And I am Mary Fisher. I'm at Lewis University in Romeoville, Illinois, and I am a co-director, the co-director with Diane of the Inclusive Education Community of Practice, and I'm involved in teacher preparation and have been a member of TASH since uh, I was a master's student in 1977. Welcome, all of you, to the Think Inclusive podcast. I'm so excited to have a conversation um, with the TASH Inclusive Education Community of Practice. Um, Who would like to explain what the goal of the community of practice is? Who are you pointing to, Diane? Pointing to someone. (laughs) Pointing to Mary. (laughs) Okay. Well, our goal is that we're one of the groups uh, that are part of TASH, and our goal is to come together as a community across the country and uh, think about critical pieces around inclusive education. And so we have separate subgroups within our community of practice, formerly a committee, uh, in which we focus on policy. One group focuses on research, and another group is focusing on ways to market and or let the world know more about what's happening in terms of inclusive education. And so we've been kind of a group that's focused on families and thinking about stories and how we share stories or how do we create infographics and uh, also build on the work that groups like Ties is has for us already and the Michigan Storyteller. So finding ways to just uh, say it more often, more frequently that we want to support all students as members of inclusive school communities in the world of education and in the world. So I heard three, so I heard three <laughs> subgroups right there. I heard policy. I heard well, not my, my short term memory. <laughs> oh, that's okay. Research. Research. Uh-huh. And then storytelling or marketing, right? Yeah, how should we call that group? We sort of combined two groups. It was infographics and families. And so uh, it's really about advocacy and and understanding, you know, the lived experiences of families, of of advocates, of students, um, and and how to help spread that knowledge and that word. Because so many many people just don't know, as you know, the research around inclusive practices. There's so much unconscious but bias around people with intellectual disabilities and and people with complex disability needs um and really it's it's getting through that layer to help open the door for inclusive education that's part of what we're trying to do Mm -hmm. how how large is the community of practice it's a hard question (laughs) We have a significant mailing list. Okay, maybe sixty members on our mailing list. I feel, and, yeah. but we have um, a core group. It's always difficult because we're trying to meet with people across the country, mm-hmm. and so scheduling is difficult. I'd say we have a core group of twenty people who are generally with us, and then other people join when they can, and/or we try to connect in different ways. 
I think that that you're, I think you're right, Mary. There's a lot of people who are interested who who frequently are not able to join the meetings just because of other responsibilities. Yes, yeah. um, but what's really interesting is is the whole group really uh, cuts across you know, all these sets of people that and with different interests. It's got yeah. advocates, it's got parents, it has researchers, it has teacher um, preparation uh, faculty members. You know, so it's it's. It's very broad and trying to, to think about what do we want to accomplish as a group has been um, an interesting uh, process uh, with several conversations, which has led us to those three groups that that Mary mentioned before. So I'm here. So I'm hearing within the group. You've you've focused. On policy, on disseminating mm -hmm. research. So, so I would say that within the group, um, we um, identified at least these three areas with people who were really focused in those areas and to be productive um, and to do as much as we could for TASH and the field. You know, we really, really thought that it would help us to have subgroups that met around specific tasks or specific mm -hmm. um, focus areas. So, um, for example, the research group, one of the things that we're thinking about is um, uh, or talking about in that group is not just how do we disseminate research, because that's what the journal is for mm -hmm. research and practices for persons with severe disabilities. Um, and then and then the other the, the newer one, inclusive practices mm -hmm. for teachers. So there's we already have outlets through TASH. So we're really more trying to focus on what research do we need? What is needed by the policy people? What is needed by the administrators? You know, what what do we need in the field to push um, the agenda or to or to have data that supports inclusive education overall for all for all kids, but especially for this population? So I would say that the research group is we're still pretty new, mm -hmm. and about uh, one of the first tasks that the whole group did was to come up with this. Um, the position statement with policy recommendations. So that was like the first task of this newly conceived community of practice. Um, and then once that was done, we broke into these three. We're still a whole group, but then we have work groups. Um, work groups, um, right. And the, and the research work group right now is trying to figure out what research do we need to move the field further? And then how do we support that either individually or as a group? Mary, does that, does that? Yeah, yeah. I, our goal is all about moving forward. And as a group, what are the ways that we can uh, uh, think about that productively, right? Right. Mm -hmm. uh, I just want to throw a plug in there that um, join TASH and you can join the inclusive education community of practice <laughs> because we welcome everyone. And that's one of the best things yeah. I think about it is that we are getting perspectives from family members, from advocates, from teachers, from administrators, from researchers. And it's really looking at what's happening in the field right now and how do we move that in the direction we need to move it. So come join Tash. Yeah, okay. great. Absolutely. Um, please join Tash. Please come to the conference. Um, it's going to be in Arizona next year. And it's going to be in person. Right. It's yes. very exciting. Yeah. 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 Right. Um, uh, Debbie, you mentioned something. Uh, you were talking about having 
all of these different perspectives and I'm wondering if you see any trends at this point with all of the people that are in the community of practice and you have, you know, from all around the country, are, are there any hopeful trends, uh, you know, with inclusive education moving forward? I, I mean, I think Diana and Mary can answer this too, but um, I think absolutely. I think we're seeing a real push to move from including one student at a time to looking systemically at how do we shift the entire culture of the education system um, at the school, at the district, at the state, and at the federal level, as opposed to we have this one parent who's working really hard to try to get their kid included. And so what are we going to do to fix that for them? But rather, what do we need to do to really clear the field so that all kids can be included um, I think that's really hopeful. Certainly, there's been a lot of finances put forward towards this in several states. California is really focusing on this. Washington's really focusing on this and, and putting the finances behind that. Additionally, um, you know, Maryland has and Washington have really stepped up and, and looked at their policies and practices. Um, so I'd say that those are all really positive pieces. Um, Mary, Diane, what else do you want to add to that? I, I think that's a, that's an important point that, um, especially with the research group, I'm just going to go back, back to that work group a little bit because we're, we're trying to think about um, how do we get past the, the one student at a time, the one school at a time, knowing that once the, the principal leaves, the school is going to go back to do what they were doing before. We've got 35 years of history telling us that that's what, what happens. So we've got to figure out a way to break that cycle uh, and look at systemic change um, and, and, and not just systemic within a school or within a district, but in the state, the policies and procedures that, that impact that as well as the federal policies and, uh, and procedures. And that's where the, the policy work group, it's, I think we're still trying to figure out, well, what is that? And, 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 and what, what is needed in order to help impact the next set of, or the next generation of policies and procedures federally, as well as at state levels. Mm -hmm. Mary, is that fair? Yes. And I think uh, just thinking from the uh, families and uh, group and infographics group that combined now kind of group that we have some people who have been uh, parents for a long time and some new parents um, and some, some newer members of the group and uh, people I think feel that frustration that we we know a lot and yet not enough people know that we know a lot right and so how do we help how do we share more and more and more and more stories um, uh, so we have facts to support us, and but the, you know, just how do we uh, create uh, a, a better understanding, right, at all levels? And I think you know, I'll say I've been on the researcher, the teacher side for a long time, and in the past twelve years, now I'm on the parent side. Um, in that I have two kids who are on the spectrum and, and shifting from being the special ed teacher at the IEP table to being the parent at the IEP table was a huge awakening to me of kind of some of the barriers that I thought we were done with. Like, I, I was like, oh, well, we all know this now and we're good. And, and I sat in my daughter's IEP team and listened to them tell me, well, you know, 
I don't really have time to do pushing into her class. So what we're going to do is have her come to my room and she'll do that for an hour to work on reading and writing. And I said, well, you've just told me that the second grader has scored at a high school level for reading. Why would I ever put her in your reading class? Like what's the point of that? Well, that's when we have time and that's when we really work on reading and writing together. And, you know, as a parent, there was this moment where I thought maybe that is what's for the best. Like maybe that is what I'm supposed to do. I'm, you know, these are educators and I know that they have my child's best interest at heart. But then as, as a researcher, as a teacher, as teacher prep, like I thought to myself, oh no, they just don't have the right information, you know? And, and that's a hard position to be in because I'm lucky enough that I have all those years of experience. I have other people I can call in the field. And, and I'll tell you, like I called Diane, I called Lewis Jackson. I was like, listen, this is what they're telling me about my kid. Tell me I'm right. Like, tell me that I'm doing the right thing here. And they're both like, yes, absolutely. But sitting in that IEP meeting is really unnerving and, and it's, it's hard. And I don't think I'd realized as a teacher how difficult it was. Mm-hmm. So using those kinds of experiences too, I think are really important because parents want what's best for their kids, but parents are dealing with getting their kids on the bus and taking care of the sick kids and going to the doctor's appointments and, you know, homeschool and COVID and, you know, you know, going to after school activities, all those other things. They don't have time to be the researchers. They don't have time to be the ones who are looking and saying, okay, what is really the best here? but they're put into that position. And so if we as a community of practice can put that information out there in easier to digest, easy to access ways, it's just better for them and it's better for students and it's better for the system to do it that way. So I think that's really been an interesting, for me, an interesting perspective, shifting you know, as part of my work, as part of the task membership, as part of the inclusive education community practice, Shifting my perspective some has been um, very eye-opening and and very um, important and, and a little disheartening sometimes. And, and I think a lot of people will find that very relatable mm-hmm. <laughs> because, uh, I mean, I uh, that's a con- that's a common comment that I get via email or social media message is I know the right thing to do. I know, you know, I'm a teacher. Like you said, I'm a teacher and they're, they want to do this to, for my child. And I know it's wrong, but I just need someone to tell me that I'm right. And I'm not, I'm not thinking about this the wrong way. Yeah. I I actually, in, in our spare time, I think one of the things that we, could work on is kind of a list of typically heard statements during IEP meetings and the the research or the, um, you know, dear colleague letters or, or, or whatever other resources out there to help address those. Cause you know, that was another issue I had. I had a teacher tell me I couldn't go visit the special ed classroom they wanted to put my daughter into because it was a FERPA violation. And I was like, Hmm, let me call you right back. And like, I immediately went online. I was like, I know there's a dear colleague letter out there that says that that is absolutely not the truth. But in the moment, I would not have trusted myself to say, oh no, that's ridiculous. You know, <laughs> like. Right. So 
I, I want to echo what Debbie is saying about um, you're getting the information to parents and, and having them feel comfortable with it. I just got on, off a call, a cold call from a school district, a new person who just left the classroom and is is um, within the department, the district department of special ed now, and has reached her own conclusions about we need to be have these kids included in general education classes. And she's trying to figure out what do we have out there that I can use to help convince teachers and help convince parents and help convince the director of special education. Um, and, and I'm going through the TIES website. I'm thinking about you know all these the, the pieces of research that we've got, but but having a conversation with her about the different types of, of special education teachers who are in self-contained settings. And what does this type of teacher need to help them understand and to question what they're doing and be okay with that, but to, to come back to what's important for the kid. And it really made me think about what kind of resources we need to have that are user-friendly and accessible and out there. So mm -hmm. I... I'm not certain we have that yet in a in a very user friendly way, for, whether it's for parents or for systems that want to change. And I think the TASH policy statement on policy recommendations for inclusive education was kind of our first step to trying to pull together all those things that we knew and all those things that we know have to happen. And then from there, TASH as, a, as an organization can use that to advocate and to identify coalitions that align with those goals. But as a community of practice, we can then take some of that information and say, okay, so these are the things we need, know need to change. How do we build those resources? How do we support that work? How do we help teachers do this? How do we help administrators? How do we help families? Um, to really address those issues and what does it mean to be a reciprocal in a reciprocal social relationship? Well, what it means is you have friends and, and they aren't just there to help you, but that you're seen as a member, a true member of that community and that everybody in that community sees you as adding something, not just as an exercise in empathy, right? Mm -hmm. Like I want my, my typical kid to learn how to be empathetic. So I'm going to let them hang mm -hmm. out with this other kid. That's not, what, what anybody, nobody wants to be the object of pity mm -hmm. as part mm -hmm. of their social relationships. That's just not what anybody wants. So how do we build those truly, um, sort I'm looking for balanced relationships. When you look at the policy statement, what, what are some key points for families and educators to focus on? Cause it's a, it's a big statement. Right. There's a lot in there. So if you have, if you have a, an educator or a family member that is just getting their feet wet and understanding what is in this, where would you point in the statement? That's a great question. I think for somebody who's just getting started, I'd really start at those first points of presuming competence and having, having and seeing high expectations. What does that look like? And looking at some of the resources that really show the difference between, oh yeah, yeah, we expect all kids to learn versus this kid is really going to be part of the community after they graduate from high school. That's our goal. Um, 
so knowing what's out there in terms of think college, knowing what's out there in terms of internships or job training, all kinds of other things. I think that's where I'd start with just the people who are just getting their feet wet, just because I think you need to know the vision before you can get down to the work. But Mary and Diane might have different answers too. I mean. I like that idea of starting uh, meeting people, right? To people who have exited a fully inclusive program, who, who are those people and uh, their advice uh, in terms of where to begin. That would be good. Uh, but I think too, in terms of the statement, oh, I like that because high expectations is the first thing is we look at characteristics of a fully inclusive school. And I think um, if someone did read the entire statement, it, uh, it's exciting and it's also so big. So even thinking if um, I moved into a district that seemed not inclusive or not welcoming as a teacher, I'm thinking now as a, a teacher, that I would want to look maybe just at that first list of what is the characteristic of an inclusive school and then choose the one thing where I think our my district might uh, make some kind of movement or change. Mm. And it mm. might be for some of my colleagues that I just want them to begin thinking about what does high expectations mean and how can my administrative team help me help others see what it means to hold high expectations. And maybe that means taking a trip to another school district that's somehow close or visiting, you know, via Zoom with some teachers who um, have another way of approaching instruction, right? Or thinking about um, this whole idea of what is a community and what a classroom learning community looks like, what it includes all of the students. So, uh, yeah, so, but I do, I mean, I think the bullets gives people an idea. Here's an idea, but you don't have to do everything at once. You can begin with just one or two bullets. So. I, I, I agree with both Debbie and, and Mary, obviously, because they're, <laughs> we're together on this. Um, I, I really like the idea of starting with the end in mind. Mm -hmm. you know, what is, why do we even provide education for any kid? And, and what does that mean for your know, purpose of education for, for individuals who have extensive support needs? What does that look like? And, and if we want uh, adults with disabilities to be in society with adults who don't have disabilities, it's like, how do we, how do we get to that point? And in talking with people who have gone through the system, either in segregated settings or in inclusive settings, you know, looking at what have been the outcomes of, of um, educational services you know, for this population and, and thinking about what we really want that to look like and then backing up to, well, if we're going to do that, we need to have A through F. We need to presume competence. We need to think about being valued and contributing members of the society and that that society for a kindergartner is kindergarten you know the society or the 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 community for fifth graders is fifth grade and their family and what's outside of school how can we take take students who have extensive support needs teach them to function someplace else and then say we're going to insert them back into the society we want them to be in to begin with we know that doesn't work. It, it, it also isn't logical um, when you think about, you know, what are we really doing here? So we know it doesn't work. The data does, says it doesn't work. 
We know that if we want kids to be engaged with kids, they've got to be with kids. You can't be engaged with kids if you're not not with them. So looking at A through F um, up at, at the beginning of it under the statement of purpose, to me is where I where I would start. And I would just stop there because that really has to set the vision of what you think educational services should look like from early intervention through age 21. What does that need to look like in order to get to the outcomes that the family wants, the the, the student wants, um, and that honestly, I mean, I think all teacher educators want and all teachers want um, for our kids to for our kids to grow up to be functioning members of society overall. So I think once you've got that vision and it and it helps think through what does that mean our services need to look like, then you can start to think more about what's in the in the bottom part that mm-hmm. has more like, well, what does that need to look like in a school? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then mm-hmm. what do I need to do to help a school or to help a, a system change what they're doing to be more effective um, in what they say they want to be effective at? which is prepare people, prepare students. And just to piggyback on that a little bit, I, I, I am amazed at how some people are really struggling to think beyond a very normal, quote unquote, look of what it means to be a member of society without thinking about kind of how do we address that? You know, and, and for me, I think about it in terms of, cause I was first really introduced to disability uh, studies around outdoor sports and, and, you know, adaptive PE rec kind of things. And the first time I saw people amputees skiing, the first time I saw people with really complex bodies skydiving, the first time I saw people rock climbing or um, people with intellectual disabilities, whitewater rafting, that for me was this moment where it came to my attention that I have been thinking about things in a very narrow way, what it means to be a member of our society in a very narrow way. And I needed to shift my thinking mm-hmm. so that it's not to be a functioning member of society, you do this, this, and this. It's to be a functioning member of society, what can I contribute and how do I do that? And what supports need to be in place for me to be able to contribute that? You know, one of the things I love about Thai Center is that we really start with that universal design perspective of the barriers are not within the student. Or the teacher, the barriers are in the system, the environment, the materials. And so how do we shift those things to make things accessible? That's really the key piece of what it means to be part of a, a, a member of society. Because I hear a lot of people sometimes push back on, well, they're never going to get a job. Well, first of all, you don't know that. And secondly, what does that job look like? It might not be a nine to five sit in an office job. But you know what? I don't have a nine to five sit in the office job. A lot of people after COVID don't have Mm -hmm. nine to five sit in the office jobs. And we're kind of happy about that, right? Like it's nice to have that flexibility. So how do we rethink our expectations is definitely a part of that. Mm -hmm. Um, A couple of things I've noticed in this statement. Uh, especially in the fully inclusive statement. And I'm just going to reflect those and and get your reaction. Um, number one, the mention uh, mentioning 
the explicit teaching of a communication system. I don't know why that jumps out to me other than I'm just not used to seeing it. So when you included that, was that very intentional? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the, and correct me guys with, with the numbers here, but I'm, I think the research is showing that like 65% of the students that we're talking about don't even have a communication system. So how can you even figure out what they know, what they don't know, what they like, who they, what they want to say if they don't have a communication system, period. So yes, I mean, if, if without a a way to communicate what you, and and it's not just, yeah, the wants and needs it's, it's content. How can you be in any type of context and not, want to talk about what's going on around you or what people are talking about and add something to a conversation. You can't if you don't have a communication system. So absolutely, that explicit teaching of a communication system is critical, critical to anybody's success in anything. Well, when we think of that first, like, what does it mean to presume competence, right? So what does it look like? Well, it looks like Everybody has a way to communicate within the group because we presume you all have something to say that we each have a voice. And so I think some of the uh, details later on really are the, what does it look like and sound like to enact this belief that we hold? So uh, yeah, and too many students, uh, uh, you know, there is a communication goal and uh, even technology might be mentioned within an IEP. But it's, it isn't something that's implemented throughout the child's day or they have the device uh, or way of augmenting their communication in part of their day, but not all of their day at school. So just to ensure that that's happening, to emphasize that. I think the other piece that's really important is that the data has has pretty clearly shown that if you enter school without a robust communication system, you're going to leave school without one, even though almost all like 99% to 100% of the data shows that if you explicitly teach a communication system, anybody is going to make progress on it. And so clearly we're not doing something right in how we're teaching communication. And we need to address that very specifically, and we need to get beyond what Michael McShane calls the nasty nine, which are like those nine typical communication options kids have on their AAC, right? Like eat, bathroom, more, no, um, yes. Are you talking about core words? No, these are different from core words. Okay. Core words are actually words that most, they're the most common words that people use. Right. I mean, that's okay. So- if you could make that distinction, because yeah. I, so when I was in the classroom, we talked about core words and, and so anyways, could you, yeah. could you help? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not oh, the expert. No, no, I no. I, yeah. Um, so core words are the most common words used in the English language, but the most meaningful ones, not the, and you know, a, cause those aren't overly helpful. Um, but the words that most commonly have meaning nouns typically sometimes verbs descriptions those are core words the nasty nine are the the very limited pieces that we think kids or adults anybody communicates and and they are so limited it's drink food 
bathroom, yes, no, help more. And I forget the other two, but they're equally, imagine if that's all you could communicate. I would absolutely check out. I mean, I wouldn't pay attention to anything that's going on around me because unless I want to eat or go to the bathroom or get a drink, who cares? So um, well, core have, words are, are very different than that. Yes. I, I just wanted to add, Debbie, to, you know, who cares? It's like there's, and I've lost the point I was going to make. Sorry, it's gone. There's, oh, there's no way for you to control your environment at all. There's, it, it, everything is being done around you or to you, except for these, these, few, you know, words that you've got, there's no other way for you to, to participate. There's no other way for you to control anything in your life without that. And if you want to know more about core words, um, Karen Erickson, Project Core is a great place to start learning about it. Also, Practical AAC. Um, I love, they are so I mean, they're practical. They're they're very user friendly. They're very family friendly. Anybody who who has had no experience with AAC can get some very clean, easy to use pieces that you can implement that day. So I would look at those two sites because they're really strong for that. The other thing I noticed about this list um, on fully inclusive schools, and maybe I'm just maybe I'm just missing it. So if I'm missing it. You just say, Tim, it's there. Um, I don't see, I don't see a really strong statement about placement. Oh. So if like, again, if I'm it's missing it, if I'm no, missing no. it, like, so we say access for all students. Yes. Uh, to campuses, classrooms, activities, and routines. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so it, Hmm. It's interesting that you're not seeing it. Yeah. And uh, so access to accommodations, which allow students to access the general education curriculum, instruction, assessment, and accountability systems. Again, I'm not seeing. So, and here's where I'm coming from. Okay. So again, and this Same is more. not, and I'm Same not, more. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to step on anyone's toes here, but no. um, something that we, and when I say we, I say it's MCIE. Um, that we stress a lot is, I mean, what you said, Diane, like you have to be there to be included. You actually have to be present, physically present in a classroom with students to be included. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so when I'm reading this, when I'm reading, it says fully inclusive schools are characterized by, mm-hmm. I just don't see placement. Okay. And, yeah, maybe it's not strong enough there, but um, when I read the third one about access for all students to campuses, classrooms, activities, and routines, it's it's maybe they should be saying general education, campuses, classrooms, yeah. activities, and routines. So well, maybe then, we need, need to do that. And then the the other one that you refer to is the access to accommodations, right, right? To access the general curriculum instruction. Well, general education instruction only happens in general education context. So, so I think that, that that's something that we might want to go back to the group and say, we need to clarify this because we, we think that, yeah. we think it says that, but if it's not clear, it needs to be very clear. If they're not there, they can't do it. Well, Absolutely. so, so in, uh, in, in the, one of the reasons I say that is because I was a, um, it, as maybe you know this, maybe you don't, Debbie knows, I, I was a self-contained, segregated, self-contained teacher. Um. Every single year I was a classroom teacher, every single one, 13 years. 
in three years, I was a district support specialist. Um, and that was, you know, from 2004 uh, to 2020 uh, that I was in public school. So I taught in California and I taught in Georgia. Um, neither one of my districts were inclusive. So my, my credentials were in, you know, quote unquote, um, moderate to severe, right, mm-hmm. in California. And then when I came to Georgia, it was adapted curriculum. Uh, and so my jobs were, if, if I wanted to teach and I wanted to, you know, to, to, to teach and be around students with extensive support needs, there was nowhere else I could go. Right. And th- this is a, this is a, this is a problem. I've, I mean, you know, I'm preaching to the choir here, uh, but here's where I'm going. Um, as a self-contained special education teacher, I could look at this list and be like, I have high expectations for all my students. Mm-hmm. Um, I have general education standards uh, that embrace that. Uh, I'm giving my students access to the campus to classrooms because I'm actively pushing mm-hmm. student pushing. And, I, you know, I'm saying that on purpose because that's what I that's what I felt like I was doing, you know, <laughs> pushing kids out into general education. I was collaborating with general education teachers. Um, so I I could do all of this stuff on this list. But it, it, mm-hmm. but but in order for in order for change to really happen, we have to be moving kids, right? We have to be actually including kids systemically and over amount of time. So that was a mistake that I made, um, and it wasn't until much later that I was like, oh, you know, like because I thought we we're I thought I was on the same page with everyone, you know. And so, I, I, and so a, a criticism that I've gotten over the years has been that, that, oh, Tim is too soft on special education teachers. Tim, you know, thinks that you can have both things happen at once. And I, I feel like that's, that's a fair criticism up to the point that I was like, I just didn't understand, you know, um, being attached member and everything like that. So, so whenever I am talking about, in like fully inclusive schools, for instance, um, I, I am very clear and make it, make it a big deal (laughs) about placement because I think that that's important. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think all the research that's coming out recently has really, really underlined that context matters and context is gen ed classrooms for 80% or more of the time Mm -hmm. and neighborhood schools. Yes. And I think that that's really key. And, and I appreciate you pointing that out to us because that's definitely not the message we want to send, right? That you can, you can do inclusion by having a couple of gen ed kids come to your special ed classroom for five minutes a, a week. And isn't that great? Right. No, that's not at all where we are. So I think that's an important point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm just what? thinking. Go on, yeah. Mary. Well, I'm just thinking about Tim and my experience was similar to yours, Tim, right? Mm. My preparation. And it wasn't until I got hired as a first grade teacher that I got to be the person who pulled the students in, right? Mm. So I felt like I had that kind of control. And we live, you know, in these systems that this parallel system and, you know, and parallel teacher preparation. So, uh, I mean, it's, it's problematic from the get go, but we, maybe part of our statement should be that the first teacher of all students is the general ed teacher, right? And that we are all 
support people to that teacher in some mm, way. Yeah. I don't know how we say that within this, but I uh, I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. I, I want to also give a plug. So I, I agree. I think we need to go back and be certain that that is clear in this because that's yeah. that's a great point, Tim. Uh, I really appreciate you pointing that out. Um, but I also want to give a plug for something that should be available by the time this is posted. Um, the Thai Center has been working on uh, a set of tools for um, systems and meaning at the state level, the district level and the school level for systems to engage in a self-reflective process about all of these features about inclusive education for kids with significant, sorry, because of the funding, significant cognitive disabilities, um, but within fully inclusive systems. And it, it is totally based neighborhood schools, general education settings. And it's very, very clear in those, in, in each of those tools. It's all research-based, it's data-based. Um, we're not making this stuff up. Um, and and it's used, it, it, the intent is for it to be used as a self-reflection tool for conversations to get people to agree on what do we mean when we talk about inclusive education for these students? What does that look like? And to what extent are we doing that or not doing that? And then figuring out what do we need to do to do better? you know, with, with whichever component of that we want to address or all components of that. So, and, and then action plan from that. So um, by the time this is posted, it should be on the TIES website. Um, so you should be look, looking for the RISE, R-I-S-E, at that point. Well, this has been a fascinating, um, fantastic, wonderful conversation um, with Debbie Taub, Diane and <laughs> <laughs> Mary Fisher. Thank you so much for being on the Think Inclusive podcast. We appreciate your time. Yeah. Our pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, our pleasure. Our honor. Think Inclusive is written, edited, and sound designed by Tim Viegas and is a production of MCIE. Original music by Miles Kredich. If you enjoyed today's episode, here are some ways that you can help our podcast grow. Share it with your friends, family, and colleagues. And if you haven't already, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Special thanks to patrons Melissa H., Sonia A., Pamela P., Mark C., Kathy B., Kathleen T., Jarrett T., Gabby M., Aaron P., and Paula W., for their support of Think Inclusive. For more information about inclusive education or to learn how MCIE can partner with you in your school or district, visit mcie.org. We will be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for your time and attention. And remember, inclusion always works. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.